If you have your Bibles, we're going to go back to chapter 1, not chapter 1, but 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians, and we're going to look in verse 8. And if you will hang on, stay with me and, and hang on. We're going to cover three chapters today. This is going to be unique considering my style of preaching. And it's, uh, it's, it was a bit challenging for me in preparing this message. Uh, spent last night on into the mornings and even this morning getting up to finish preparing it. it it's really challenging because we can't look at this one chapter isolated. Chapter 8, 9, and 10 there, there is a connection within those chapters and I, I want us to see that connection today. And while we look at this connection, I can go ahead and tell you if I were to judge, this, ain't, this isn't a message that you're going to shout me down with. But I pray it's a message that edifies the body. I pray it's a message that glorifies God and magnifies his son. However, the Holy Spirit can do what he wants to do. And if he does what he can do and what he desires to do, he may have you raise your hand. He may have you say amen. He may have you dance a little jig. Whatever he has you to do, that's okay. It won't matter what I think the message is about. What matters is how God uses this message in your heart. As you're turning there in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians in verse 1, in one of his prayers before the United States Senate, Peter Marshall prayed, Lord Jesus, thou who art the way, the truth, and the life, hear us as we pray for truth that shall make us all free. Teach us that liberty is not to be loved, not, to, not only to be loved, but also to be lived. Liberty is too precious a thing to be buried in books. It costs too much to be hoarded. Help us see that our liberty is not the right to do as we please, but the opportunity to please to what is right. I hope you really understood that prayer. Having Christian liberty in this world does not give us the liberty to live any kind of way we want to live. There's a mistaken thought about Baptist churches is that we preach because we believe in the security of the believer. We believe in the eternal security of the believer. I, I just firmly believe that when God saved me, he sealed me till the day of redemption. I believe that I'm as sure of heaven today as if I was already there. God, when Jesus died for my sin, he died for my past, my present, my future. I believe with all that's in me when he forgave me of my sin. He forgave me of my past, my present, and my future. The penalty of my sin has been erased from me because I know that I know that I know that I've been born again. I don't like the phrase once saved, always saved, unless you're going to add to it if saved. 
I love the, the phrase uh, to be eternally secure. That suggests that, that we know without a doubt that we had an encounter with Christ and not an emotional experience. And there is a difference. There are many who profess to be saved who will hear the Lord say, depart from me for I never knew you. That's not to say that you were saved and that then you were lost. It's to say that you never knew him for the forgiveness of your sins. What I'm convinced of today is who I am in the Lord. What I can see is your works. And I can hear your testimony. But it doesn't matter what I hear or see. What matters is what you know. And you must know that you've been born again. I have no doubt of that. Why? Because I was there when it took place. Did I go back to my mother's womb? No. But I was there when Jesus forgave me of my sin. I was there when I believed and I confessed. I was there when I was set free from the bondage of sin. Doesn't mean I'm perfect. Doesn't mean that I get it right all the time. It doesn't mean that I don't have a reason to pray because I haven't escaped the chastisement of my sin. And neither have you. We will face chastisement here on earth, but I'd much rather face this chastisement on earth than to face his penalty for eternity. That's been dealt with. And I pray it's been dealt with for you. But Christian liberty gives us the idea that, that we don't have the liberty to do anything we want to do. Instead, we have the obligation to do as Christ would have us do. I believe that's what, that, that was the center of that prayer. So my question today for us is, can Christian liberty divide? Now, we know through, throughout the book of 1 Corinthians that we've been preaching this and we've gotten to chapter 8. We know that there's division in this church and it is chaotic in some areas of the church. It was so chaotic that, that they sent a letter to Paul and she said, told Paul that, you know, there, there's trouble here. We need some help. And what I've come to understand that here in this, too often... We get mixed up what, is the, what we have the right to do with doing the right thing. Too often, the latter is forsaken. And because it's forsaken, our Christian liberty becomes that source of division for us. We understand that in the first six chapters of this book... It was all about the division that was taking place. Now we get to chapter 7 from 7 to 16. We begin to see that it's more about the questions that are arising within the church that they don't have answers for. They can't find answers for in the word of God. So here, Paul deals with the issue of Christian liberty and how it can divide. When we look in this passage, the Bible says, and I'm going to read one verse. Since we're going to span through chapters 8, 9, and 10, we're going to read one verse for our hearing today. And the Bible says, now, concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. 
knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Let's, let's read that again. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we, have, we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. This is God's holy word. God, as we come before you today, help us, humble us, be with us, speak to us, use us, God, for your glory. God, we pray that the words that we share today would be words that you have ordained. We pray, God, that you would open our hearts and our minds and help us to receive what you thus saith the Lord. And God, help us to apply it to our lives and use it for your glory and to magnify your son. Now, God, we pray that if there's one with us who doesn't know you through your son, Jesus Christ, let this be the day that they experience your love and your grace and your mercy through salvation. Let this be the day the where they can know that they have been born again, the where they can be secure in you. And we'll praise you for all that you do. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Now, we, we, we understand as we've been going through this book that, that the Apostle Paul desires to help the church, this church in Corinth, to, to be unified as a body of believers. He uses, again, he uses these first six chapters with the issues of the vision that the church is struggling with. But in these latter chapters, 7 through 16, he's dealing with, with these issues that arise or these questions that they can't find answers to. So here in chapter 8, 9, and 10, Paul deals with the issue of Christian liberty. What am I free to do? What am I at liberty to do? And what, he, what we find here. As we look at this, is there is a reality that Christian liberty can divide. There is a reality to this. When we look there in verse 8, when he says this, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that all have knowledge. We all have knowledge, and knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. In other words, he's saying here in this verse that, that if we just because we know better do what we feel we have the right to do, it's going to make us seem very arrogant. But when we're more concerned about others, when we share that we love others, then that will edify the church. It may mean that I've got to put some of my wants on the back burner. It may, believe, it may mean that some of the things that I feel like I can do, I just shouldn't do. Not that it's wrong for me to do it, but, but that it doesn't help, but it hurts. Paul here, he is making this very clear because there is a reality to Christian liberty dividing. Here we see that in this first verse that the issue is surrounding or centering around idle meat, foods that have been offered up to idols. In a time when the Apostle Paul was writing to the Corinthian believers, if a person accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, it wasn't like the day that we're living in. It wasn't like everybody's patting you on the back and, and people are looking at you in a certain way to where they're happy for you. They're just, you know, trying to see if you're going to mess up. That's the day we live in. I remember growing up when people were just ecstatic for you. I remember growing up when people would step 
step aside if they were in wickedness and, and they might even hide some of their wickedness if they knew that you were a believer. I remember the day when people had a fear of trampling all over the grounds of a holy place that's been set aside for worship. I remember a day when, when people would, would be happy that you had gotten saved. We don't live in that day any longer. We live in a day closer to this day, a day when people are striving to see us fail, a day when people are wanting us to be contradictory to our testimony. Here in this day in which Paul was writing to be a believer, it affected you socially. It affected the circle of friends that you had. It affected the social Things or social activities that you were involved in. What, what made this such a problem was that at every social function, meat was served. Aren't you, man, I, I, I want to tell you, I'm so glad that at most social functions, there's food. Because when I don't know anybody and I'm uncomfortable, I can go fix me some food and get in the corner and I can eat. I can at least do that. You know, uh, and, and if I'm going to eat, my wife will tell you I want meat around. I, 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 have, a, I have trouble eating only vegetables and no meat. I, I probably, to look at me, I'm probably needing to form that habit, but I haven't got there yet. And, and so here, this was an issue for them. You know, there, I remember a day that where if I went to grandma's and grandma said, Boy, go, go get you something to eat. And I said, no, she was offended. Some of y'all know that. There are some houses I've been in. And I was told before I went in those houses, if you, they offer you something to eat, you better eat. Whether you want to or not, it doesn't matter if you just ate, you better eat or you're going to offend them. Well, that's the way it was in this day. In this day, when, when you went to a social gathering and there was food there and you didn't eat, it was highly offensive. And it could cost you friendships. It could even cost you business arrangements. It didn't matter what kind of function it was, from weddings to business deals. There were meat there and it had been offered up to idols. No matter what event, the host family often would say a prayer to their God over the food. So the question becomes, what is a Christian to do in the first century church in Corinth? Should a Christian attend such social functions? Now keep in mind, these social events we're, we're talking about here, if a Christian refused, it would affect his livelihood. And it would affect, affect his friendships. And let's remember, we're talking about the city of Corinth where most families worship pagan gods. So at mealtime, it was common for a family to offer a small sacrifice to the God that they served for a blessing. And the markets, in turn, sold meat to the public. Some of the believers felt like even buying these, this meat in the marketplace, it, it meant that they were actually taking part or they were okay with the sacrifice toward other gods. So many Christians, they just stopped eating meat in the first century. They just quit eating meat altogether. They were right. The question becomes, were they right? Were they right in their conviction? Or was it okay for the Christians to go ahead and eat food that had been used 
in the worship of idols. Now, the Christian believers needed help with this. They needed the answers to these questions. And by the looks of your faces, some of you want to hear the answer to this question. You know, this is some of the things that we, it may not be completely spelled out unless you go into the law. But we're no longer bound by the law, right? So what does this really mean to us? Seems the Christian believers needed some guidelines that would help them to live the Christian life in the midst of a sinful world. And for us today, the issue may not be whether we choose to eat meat, but I'm sure that we have certain convictions that may not be supported by Scripture. In some Christian circles, there may be practices that we that they may find okay, but other Christians may not find okay. They may even, some may even find it offensive. So to keep our Christian liberty from dividing us, we need to look at the remedy to Christian liberty dividing. There is a reality to this. So we need to focus now on the remedy. There are three things we need to really focus on. One is that we care for one another. You know, when we're put in positions to where we really don't know what to do, we should be thinking first about caring for each other. We need to care for those who are around us. In other words, it should matter to us as believers what others think. Mark 12, 30 and 31 says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there is no commandment greater than these. So here in chapter 8, the apostle Paul shares that If you look over in verses 3 through 13, you begin to see that he shares that that we know that an idol is nothing. It's no more than wood, metal, or stone. In fact, an idol is a waste of good material. An idol is dead. There's no life in it. It Idol worship itself is completely meaningless. However, there is one true God and he is father of all he is the creator of the world he spoke the world into existence he created man out of the dust of the ground he created woman from a man's rib and we don't only have one true God we also have one Lord and his name is Jesus Christ and it's through Jesus that we have life it's only through him that we can be made right with God he is our redeemer for he has redeemed us from the penalty of our sin he is our healer for one day he will free us from the presence and the power of sin so if only Jesus can make us right with God then food we eat or we don't eat has no bearing on whether we're better or worse with God. Furthermore, food that's been associated to idols, it has no effect on us. That's what Paul's saying. It has no effect on us. However, if you look in verse 7, well, whenever you see a word like this, a transition word that ties what has already been said with what's about to be said, we need to pay attention. 
Because Paul changes something here. He says, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. In other words, everyone doesn't know what you know. In other words, there's some believers here that are on a different spiritual path than other believers. There's some who's been saved for just a few years, but they spend so much time devoted to God's word and to, to being in the presence of God that God is just moving them along. There's some who's been, who's been saved for many years and have been on this journey and just floundering around, doing whatever they want to do, not really getting close to God. And wherever you are on this journey, we need to understand everybody's not in the same place we're in what Paul is saying here is there may be new converts who've come out of idolatry who still see eating food offered up to idols as being a sin they see it as it defiling themselves and to see others do it other believers do it they feel like they're defiling themselves and they may be offended also so in verse 13 paul uses that word again therefore another transition word so we need to know what's it there for and what he's saying here if food makes my brother stumble i will never eat meat lest i make my brother stumble paul <laughs> paul is very clear here I may know that it ain't going to hurt me. I may know that eating this food, all it's going to do is fill my belly. It's going to quench my hunger. But if it's going to offend somebody, I'll stay away from it. Can I say what just spoke to my spirit? It's a little out of place, but I, I just want to say this. Listen. I'm pretty sure, men, you flirting with another man's wife is going to offend him. Well, preacher, it's just words. I don't care if it's just words. Don't offend your brother. <laughs> ladies, ladies, you know we love you. But you shouldn't leave the house. In a way that offends your husband. You shouldn't leave the house. In a way that where he's not proud. And what I'm talking about in a way that's trying to attract other men. You can't help if a man looks at you. Because you've dressed in a way that glorifies God and your husband. And he's attracted but you can't help if you're laying everything out there for the man to see. Now let me get back to the message. <laughs> Paul is saying here, though I have the knowledge and understanding that eating meat will have no bearing on my eternity, I, not, I will not allow my Christian liberty to be divisive. Paul continues that conversation about eating meat over in chapter 10. Meat that's been offered up to idols. In chapter 10 verses 23 through 33, we find that Paul is encouraging us to consider 
one another. Not just care about what others think, but to con- actually consider it. Paul says in verse 23, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Paul shares here that with the Christian believers to feel free to eat whatever is sold in the marketplace. But just don't ask if it's been offered up to idols. It's just better not to know. Paul goes on to say, even if someone invites you to dinner, freely eat. You have liberty to freely eat whatever they have and they offer you. Just don't ask. If it's being offered up to idols. But. (laughs) But. That other transition word. If a brother or sister tells you that it's been offered up to idols. Then just leave it alone. Wait a minute preacher. Wait Wait a minute preacher. Paul said this and now he's saying this. It sounds like it's contradicting itself but it's not. He said we have liberty to eat whatever we want. Then he's saying it's better not to. Well, what Paul is wanting us to understand that it's better to consider the weaker brother or sister. You know, it's not about what we have the liberty to do, but rather about what is the right thing to do. In verse 31, Paul says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So whatever we eat or drink, it should glorify God. Whatever we say to others, it should glorify God. Whatever we do around others, it should glorify God. And if it doesn't, then maybe though we have the right to do it, we shouldn't do it. You know, Friday evening, Iola and I, we went to Pembroke to get some food from some vendors that were there around LRDA. I guess you could say we went on date night at Lumbee Homecoming. We went, got our food, went straight to the vehicle, and we rode through town and went straight home to eat. I don't hang around uh, very long in places like that. I have my personal reasons. I don't want them to be yours. I just have mine. And uh, I I hope you all that went, I hope you enjoyed yourselves. I wouldn't say anything was bad about being there because I didn't see anything bad. Just went and got some food and went home. But walking toward a particular vendor, we walked up on Brother Horace and another gentleman. They were having a conversation. Brother Horace stopped me, shook my hand, and the guy shook my hand and asked, Are you the pastor at Reedy Branch? Yes, sir, I am. He said, You and I, you're the one I saw at... uh, he, he works with the town of Pembroke and he saw me at my daughter's house in the backyard. But that ain't where he really remembered me as the pastor. He remembered me being here at Brother Austin Chavis's funeral. He said, you preached Brother Austin's funeral, didn't you? I said, yes, sir, I did. Now, can I say this man, he thought the world of Brother Austin and for good reason. Listen to what you said. This man, he shared that he was preacher Isaiah's son. Now, you who've got a little bit of age on you, you may remember that name. It's preacher Isaiah's son. He, he was drugged to church 
growing up so much that he said he had, once he got grown, he was never going back to church. And it was in 2012 when this man got saved. And I thank God that he got saved. And at the time, he was working for the state. And he was working around Brother Austin. And he gave credit to him receiving Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior to Brother Austin's witness around him. He shared that the way this man lived his Christian life at work made an impact on him. And because of that, it changed his life. Brother Austin played a tremendous part in this man's life. Brother Austin had, had done such, such for this man that we can tell that he cared enough for the man. That, that the fact that he was lost and on his way to hell, that he considered this man in everything he'd done and said on the job. I, I can't help but believe that he considered that whatever he said and whatever he'd done would play a part in whether or not this man would ever serve the Lord. I can't help but believe that, that even though Brother Austin had liberty to say certain things or the liberty to do certain things, that he put someone else's life and their eternity before his own. I can't help but believe... At some point, Brother Austin found Hebrews 10 and 24, which says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. I can't help but believe Brother Austin, once he found that, he made that verse his life verse for work. And apparently, he did not allow his Christian liberty to be used to hurt a man who was on his way to hell. Instead, he used his Christian liberty to help a man come to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. You know, there are times when we should do the same. There are times when we should care for others enough to consider them above ourselves. That means even when we have the right to do something, it may not be the right thing to do. We can say all we want, that God knows my heart. And you better believe he does know your heart. He also knows your intentions. And he also knows whether you know better or not. Such things as dress codes as Christians, we're not bound to them. However, all men and women should dress modestly. But there are some Christian circles I wouldn't dress the way I'm dressed in. There's some Christian circles that, that if you're going to go work for them and you're a male, you need to have on blue jeans or you're going to offend them. There's some Christian circles that if, you, if you're a female and you're going to work on a mission trip and you know ahead of time, they want you in skirts. If you don't, you're going to offend them. There's some Christian circles that I'd have to remove this tie or I'm going to offend them. There's some Christian circles, and I always wear long sleeves uh, under a jacket, but there's some Christian circles if you don't have on long sleeves at any time it's offensive to them and when we know that it's better not to offend even though in the grand scheme of things your long sleeves your pants or your skirts really don't matter to God what matters is your heart but if we know it's offensive we need to do what we can to put our feelings aside to not offend others. But not only that, people, you know, in today's society, <laughs> and this isn't going to be popular. <laughs> people, we, we like to share our thoughts and our opinions, don't we? 
we learn well that we have the right to free speech. If we don't know any other statement in the declaration, we know that or the Bill of Rights. We have a right to free speech. And social media is the place where professing Christians will come out of the woodwork to criticize. Uh, They may be well in their right to point some of this stuff out that's being posted. But a lot of what's being posted by professing Christians does not glorify God. Neither does it edify the body. So just because we have the right to do it doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. We can't use our Christian liberty as a weapon. I, 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 let me encourage us all, and this is myself included. Before we hit send on Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, and Twitter, and whatever else is out there, let's reread what we've written. And let's ask ourselves, does this glorify God? Does it edify the body? I think if we would do that and do an honest assessment of it and be obedient to God's word, I think we'd stop hearing people all over Facebook saying, and they called themselves a Christian. I'm coming to a close. (laughs) I'm coming to a close. Paul not only encourages us to care for others and to consider others, he tells us to be careful not to abuse our privilege. Let's go back to chapter 9. If we look in chapter 9, we begin to see the connection here. While chapter 9 has nothing to do with idle meat, it does have to do with rights and privileges. In verses 1 through 16, the Apostle Paul connects these verse these chapters by sharing his rights and his privileges as an apostle basically what paul was saying that he has the right to be financially supported by the church you don't believe it spend some time in verses 1 through 16 in chapter 9 Paul had the right to be supported financially by the church. In verses 4 through 6, he asks, does he not have the same right to eat, to drink, and to take a believing wife as the other apostles, including Peter? Now, he says that, including Peter. Boy, there's a lesson right there for the Catholic church, isn't there? That's another message. In verse 11, Paul says, if we have sown spiritual things to you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? In verse 14, Paul says, even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. And then he says in verse 15, but I have not, I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me. So it would be better for me to die than anyone to make my boasting void. Paul is saying here. I'm more concerned with serving Christ. And serving you. And God being glorified. Than for you to take the work that I've done. And use it as a reason to blaspheme against the word of God. He had the liberty. But he didn't want that Christian liberty that he had. To overshadow the glory that God was giving. 
from him ministering. He pastored this church. Not only, he founded this church. And now he's writing to them to encourage them. I hope, I hope we see this on both sides because there is two sides to this coin. Paul was saying, I haven't asked you for a thing. Instead, I work. He was a tent maker by trade, and he'd done whatever he needed to do to be financially supportive himself. He didn't, he didn't burden the church for it because he didn't want them complaining about paying him because the gospel meant too much in the first century. And you know what? It means just as much today. Well, wait a minute, preacher. You're full-time here. Yes, I am. I didn't call myself to this church. You called me. (laughs) And because you called me, there's a responsibility that falls in your lap. And they're found in these same verses. Every pastor should be careful not to abuse their privilege or their right as a pastor. But no church should ever abuse its right or its privilege either. Paul says that we are not to muzzle the ox when when he treads out the grain. He says that he who plows should plow in hope. He reminds the believers in Corinth that even though those who minister over holy things in the temple eat things of the temple... For when the church abuses its privileges, they overshadow or they dim the glory that God desires to receive from the church. Every pastor should be careful not to take advantage of their congregation. Boy, it saddens me when pastors do that. It saddens me when pastors are trying to fleece the sheep. I... I, I, I wouldn't say any of our pastors do that. But there are pastors who are jetting around on their own jets. I appreciate pastors who have found other ways other ways who have the intelligence and the know-how to write a book and make enough money on the writings of those books that they no longer draw a salary from their church i appreciate that but when you're in a church this size (laughs) you don't have time to write books (laughs) you don't have the staff that those pastors have But there are too many pastors preaching a prosperity gospel and taking advantage of people who are having to make decisions on whether to pay their light bill or pay their tithes. There are too many pastors taking advantage in in so many different ways that they're, they're voiding the glory that God wants to receive from that church. But it's sad when a church follows the example of the world. When we, we should never seek to get as much as we can get for as little as we can pay 
from anyone who provides a service in the church. I'm talking about from the janitor to the groundskeeper to whatever position you hire. It should not be our desire to say, well, how little will they come for? That's the world's way of doing things. Because you know, when you go to job interviews, what they're going to do is is show you a a pay range. And oftentimes, they're going to put you at the bottom of that pay range unless you have a lot of experience in that area. That should never be the church's way. The church should always want to be good stewards over what God has given them. We don't throw money away, but it ain't our money to hoard up. It's God's money to be used for ministry. And the church should be the one setting the example to the world. Our Christian liberty is a gift of God. I I told you you wouldn't shout. Boy, somebody to shout it over those last few statements, I'd have went, I'd have got on Facebook and told the world. Because <laughs> it don't happen <laughs> in any church. <laughs> it's just some truth we have to share. Our Christian liberty is a gift from God. However, the reality is it can and it will be divisive. If abused, it will be divisive. But before we seek to exercise our Christian liberty, we should do well to remember the remedy of it being divisive. That is, before we exercise our Christian liberty, we should seek to care for one another. We should seek to consider one another. And we should be careful not to abuse our privilege. This it is what Christian liberty is. God's given us the liberty of knowing that heaven's our home. And while we're on earth, we are his feet and we are his hands. And we are to love one another, care for one another, consider each other, and not abuse each other. This is God's word to us. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I pray that right now that God is working in your hearts some way for you to receive this message. But I also pray if there's one here who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There's a liberty that we have (laughs) knowing that we are no longer bound by sin. Knowing that one day, soon and very soon, Jesus is coming back. Oh, and when he comes back, he's coming for his church. He's coming for his bride. He's coming back for those who know that they know that they know they've been born again. First, those who have already gone before us, the Bible says that the graves will open up. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. But before they get to him, in the moment, the twinkling of an eye, those of us who are here, if it happened today, that we would be changed. 
that we would receive a new body. One like Jesus had after he arose. One that's no longer confounded by time and space. One that no longer ages. One that no longer experiences death. One, one that no longer understands sickness. One that no longer understands trouble or strife. One that will glorify God for all eternity. The question is, are you prepared for that day to happen now? If you're not, and it does, there's nothing holding Jesus back. Nothing has to take place that prevents him from coming. He can justly come in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And he's justified if he comes. And if he comes, will you be received? I want to share this with you. If you've heard today's message. And he comes and you don't know him. You can go ahead and mark it down. According to the word of God. Because you've heard the truth. And rejected the truth. He will send the deluding spirit and you will believe a lie rather than the truth and hell will be your home. It's not my will, but neither is it God's. It's not his will that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. My question is, having the freedom to do whatever you want to do, is it worth you taking the risk? of walking out of here today without knowing Jesus as your Savior.